If I haven't met you yet, my name is Mitch, and I am the pastor of community and youth here at Reality. And as John mentioned already, uh, this Sunday marks our entering into our new summer series on the rule of life. While this language of rule of life uh, is common in our church community, we mention it from announcements every week, uh, it's likely a reference uh, that needs a little bit of dusting off, a little bit of cleaning, um, so that we can better understand what we're actually getting at with this. So when we invite you to a rule of life, we're inviting you to intentionally craft a routine that orientates your life around Jesus, who is at the center. So the rule of life is not simply language we use. It's pointing to habits that we are intentionally placing in our days, our weeks, and our months that push us closer to the person of Jesus. Annie Dillard, who is an American writer, has written some beautiful works, including Pilgrim at Tinker Creek and Holy the Firm. She writes this, How we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. A schedule defends from chaos and whim. A schedule is a net for catching days. It is a scaffolding on which a worker can stand and labor with both hands at sections of time. So the rule of life is an intentional crafting of the sections of our time so that we may look more like Jesus. And there's two elements that I want to highlight on the vertical axes of this diagram that we use to frame our rule of life language. The rule of life as followers of Jesus means that we are always constantly embracing and resisting. For our rule of life, we intentionally embrace conversations that are meaningful and of depth. Our rule of life intentionally invites you to embrace meals with friends, grabbing your Bibles to read scripture before grabbing your phones. It's an intentional embracing of conversation with God through prayer throughout our day. You are invited to embrace the things that push you closer to the person of Jesus and not simply closer to the things that make you feel good or the things that you want. They're not always the same thing. So first, for our rule of life, we invite you to embrace practices that push you closer to Jesus. And the second is we also invite you to reflect on the areas of your life that you need to resist actively. So part of our rule of life, we say that we actually need to resist scrolling endlessly through social media and have a cap on the amount of time that as followers of Jesus we are putting into our media consumption. We are resisting the lure of daily Amazon Prime spending and rather giving with generosity to the community of faith and other organizations in our city. It also means, even at times, resisting eating throughout our weeks. There are things that we need to resist, which we may like, in order to embrace God's invitation to reflect His glory and to experience His love. And so my sermon today is not going to be talking through all the nitty-gritty specifics of what our rule of life Uh, entails. Uh, All that information is on our website, 
So if you go to realityvancouver.com, one of the top tabs says rule of life, and there's a booklet you can download. There's practices, there's resources for each practice, including books and podcasts, depending on how you learn. I just invite you to go there. Um, But this sermon is hoping to be a start to say, are we reflecting actively on things that we can embrace that draw us into the love of Jesus? And what in our life do we actually need to resist in order that we might follow Jesus in Vancouver? And so paired with our own crafting of a rule of life, as John mentioned before, throughout the summer we've intentionally lined up a group of people to be preaching on Sundays to share practices that have shaped them in their um, pursuit of following Jesus. So as you think of your own spiritual scaffolding in the language of Dillard, we encourage you to listen and learn from the experience of those who are coming in to our community from outside because we really value the diversity of their voices. Um, Some of them we've heard before and others we haven't. So I I encourage those come together, our own crafting and our learning and engaging of people that are living in Vancouver, saying, hey, this is how we can follow Jesus here. And it means intention, intention to embrace, intention to resist. And now this might sound counterintuitive, but the goal, the goal of our having a rule of life is that you would not have to have a rule of life. Our goal is not simply that you create a really sweet schedule. Some of you who are maybe more like me, you're like, scheduling. Nice. Crafting an intentional schedule. That's not my strong suit. But the goal is not just simply to have a nice schedule that you can put in your journal, you can cross off things. The intention is that at the end of this, you would be in union with Jesus and the Father and the Spirit. That's actually our hope is that you would confidently rest in the presence of God and therefore you could confidently be the presence of God as stewards in all of creation. That's the end. It's not the the discipline. It's actually the dependence on Jesus. That's what we're trying to learn. How can we devote our whole beings to the way of Jesus? And the reason why we still have the practical uh, sermon, people sharing on Sundays, and, and we have this beautiful chart that we try to work through, is, if we're honest, uh, we don't always experience in our hearts this union and participation with God. We don't always experience on earth what it's like in heaven. From dawn to dusk, from moon to sun, there's something that does not feel like it should be. There's something elusive within us that just seems... Um, to not be able to satisfy what we have deep within. It's hard for me to find any book or resource on spiritual formation without them giving this classic quote from Augustine. There's a classic quote, and yet it's beautiful. It says this, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Every day, in some form or another, there is a restlessness within us. Maybe we acknowledge it. Maybe others of us push it down like the balloon in a pool of water. But there is a restlessness that we taste of. I think that this restlessness is our longing to be with our creator and empowered to be his stewards. What Deb said when she looked at her mom and was learning and reflecting, she said that we can't do it without the help of God. And when Deb said that, I can't help that it answers this quote, that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in the one who has actually created our hearts. 
Another writer says that there's a mystery in our hearts bigger than our hearts themselves. And so for this week, as we start, I want to start um, by looking at prayer. Offering prayer at the beginning of this Rule of Life series as a practice that offers satisfaction to this mysterious and deep longing at the core of our creational being to be loved and learn somehow to love other people even when we're annoyed with them. To learn about our identity, our belonging and purpose. And it seems to me that Jesus actually needed to rest in the presence of his Father in order to engage with the restlessness of the world that he engaged with day after day after day. Jesus is the only person to truly embrace the bigness of this mystery that's in our hearts that's bigger than ourselves. Prayer is the practice that Jesus depends on the most because prayer drew Jesus into utter worship and reliance on the will of his dad. And so my hunch is this, and this is a point that I'm going to be saying throughout this sermon, is I was reflecting on saying, why is prayer so central? Why should prayer be so central in our life? Is because the, the area, the source of Jesus' greatest dependence has to be the place of our greatest longing. The, the source where Jesus says, I cannot help but depend here, that points to the source deep within us of the, the greatest of longings, which is to be in the presence, drawn into the presence and be satisfied in the Father's love. And so I want to talk about prayer this morning. And I want to do it going through the Gospel of Luke. We've been working through Luke's account of the good news through our series on Jubilee. And so I encourage you, you can turn your Bibles to Luke 11 if you have them with you. We're going to be looking at the start. That's Luke 11. But as we work through the Gospel of Luke on the theme of Jubilee, the the happenings of God happening amongst us. What we read at the beginning of Luke up to chapter 11 is that Jesus starts driving out possessive spirits from the devil. We see these beautiful announcements of Jesus restoring the skin of those who are, who are leprous. Jesus offers forgiveness of sins to a paralytic and also says you can just take your mat because you don't need it anymore. You're healed. Jesus raises a boy and a girl from the dead. Jesus restores a woman plagued with bleeding for 12 years. He feeds 5,000 plus people with a few cod and some non-bread. And after all of this, moving to Luke 11, the disciples only have one thing that they see fit that they want to ask Jesus to teach them. One thing recorded in all the Gospels where the disciples say, Jesus, we need you to teach us to do something. And this is what we read in Luke Chapter 11. I love this. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. How vague is that? Jesus, one day, was praying somewhere. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. The the culture that the disciples lived in was the OG, the original culture of a rule of life. They had their law which marked them as the people of God. And then they had 613 extra-biblical laws that they put in place to safeguard the central law given to them by God. 613 additional things to make sure that they would not break the rules of the Sabbath. They had a rule of life. 
I dare say the disciples prayed more often than we do. Why did they ask Jesus, teach us to pray? If they were already in a time and a place where they had a rule of life, a beautiful structure, a scaffolding that marked them uniquely as the people of God. Why do you think instead of asking, Lord, teach us to raise the dead, Lord, teach us to multiply food for all those people in poverty that don't have it. Instead, they ask, Lord, teach us to pray. Ronald Rollheiser invites us. He's a a Catholic theologian, a writer. He writes this, thinking about why would the disciples ask? He says this. What Jesus drew from the depth of his prayer was not, first of all, his power to do miracles or silence his enemies with some kind of superior intelligence. What the disciples wanted for their own lives was the depth and graciousness of his soul. When I read that, what the disciples saw was not all these miraculous healings. They saw something deeper. They said, you're drawing from a well that I don't quite understand how to draw from. From how you respond to people. How you care for people. The disciples knew that the depth of their longing could only be satisfied in the depth of Jesus' love that they saw when he returned from prayer. Lord, teach us to pray. Between all the magnetic stories of liberation, we love reading those, and our series on Jubilee was amazing. But between all of these magnetic stories of liberation, healings, of Jubilee, in Luke's gospel, Jesus continually ducks out to pray. Now, some of you might just think uh, and be prone, as I am, to think that prayer can just feel like a waste of time because it's not active enough. I think that's why we're drawn to these stories of liberation, of Jesus interacting with people, bringing jubilee, bringing his kingdom. And yet, continually, eight times, Luke tells us that Jesus slipped away to pray. Jesus resisted a lot of good things to safeguard his time of embracing God in prayer. Our rule of life, resist and embrace. The biographer of Jesus, Luke, said that Jesus had a habit of withdrawing. The English translators, we use the word frequent often. Jesus' spiritual secret, it seems, the catalyst behind all of his beings and doings is his dependence on prayer. At the end of our lives, can I just say, as I was reflecting, at the end of our lives, I hope that one of the things that our biographers write about us that we do frequently is pray. I wonder right now if my, a biographer would look at my life, have it in, and say, does Mitch frequently pray? And so that's one of the invitations, just to, to reflect and to think. But what I, what I want us to focus on today, and w- what we're going to do moving forward, I'm going to highlight two things that I see um, in Jesus when he returns from prayer. And then we're going to have a practice of praying together at the end. So I want to say, what does Jesus look like when he returns from his time of prayer? What does, how is he satisfied? How is he refreshed? And then I want us to take about five minutes to pray together. So the two things that I see when Jesus returns from his time of prayer is this. First, that Jesus returns from prayer refreshed in his identity. First, Jesus returns from his time of prayer refreshed in who he is in light of who God is. 
In light of Him being God's Son. The second thing, Jesus returns from prayer refreshed in His vision of how God's will is happening on earth. Two things. The first is this. Jesus returns from prayer refreshed in His identity. At the beginning of Luke, uh, we, we have the, the story of Jesus' baptism. And then God says these words, words that we say often. It says, after Jesus was baptized, he was praying, and then God spoke these words to him. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. It's interesting to me that Luke is the only one who actually says, it wasn't in the act only of baptism. Jesus was praying. Think of that image. While Jesus had a time of baptism, marking the start of his ministry, it says he was praying, and in that moment of prayer, God said, you are my child, I love you, and I approve of all that you've done even before you do it. I'm well pleased. The mystery deep in the heart of humanity and deep within Jesus is spoken to, is satisfied by the approval of his Father. Jesus' source of dependence is the point of our deepest longing. Prayer brings Jesus to hear the most satisfying of loves. A refreshment in his identity that I think we yearn for. We actually talk about it a lot. And yet we seek to find refreshment to this longing of asking, who who am I? We often seek it in everything but prayer. Because prayer doesn't seem to actually do very much. Instead, we're like, I'll just grab one more book. Instead, I'll just listen to one more podcast this week. Instead, I'll follow that Instagram personality that's actually kind of showing me how I should be living my life because they seem to have got it correctly. Maybe it's the art that we engage with. Maybe it's the work that we're doing with our hands that we find satisfaction in. Maybe it's activities. We're just seeking this longing of who am I? We just try to find it in almost everything but prayer because prayer seems impractical. This morning, I woke up with some anxiety in my heart. It's hot, fan turned off in the night. Woke up, and I just was like, man, got to spend more time working on the sermon because I'm not sure what people are going to think. So I woke up, I was looking, and I just found myself going back to the prayer that Jesus gives his disciples that we're going to talk about. In that moment when I'm like, are they going to think I've studied enough? Are they going to appreciate my word choice? Am I going over time? I need to refine, refine, refine. And yet, I just found myself going back to our Father. Father, what is your identity that you've placed? Before anything else, the Father wants you to know that you are approved and accepted in Him, that you're adored. Maybe you actually haven't heard that in a while. And maybe you have heard it, but it sounded cheap. You are approved. You are adored. And we need to know this because the evalu- our own evaluation of our skills and our values, our parenting styles, our work relationships, our financial stability, our friendships, our housing situation, all of these will eat our identity alive. It will eat, eat it alive. If we are not daily going back to the core of who we are, and we see Jesus finding this in his moment of prayer, that we're approved, that we are accepted, Daily having an intentional scaffolding that reminds us of divine love. There's a Swiss, Swiss theologian with quite a name, Hans Urs von Balthasar. Uh, wrote a book on prayer that I really appreciate. 
He gives this image for us. The whole of our creaturely being and essence and of the everyday world which we find ourselves and find our bearings is afloat like a ship above the immense depths of the unfathomable love of the Father. All the ways that you find your being and your bearings, Jesus invites it to be like a ship afloat of the unfathomable, unfathomable depths of the love of the Father. And so like Jesus, when he goes out to pray, the first thing that I notice is that he comes out refreshed in who he is. Satisfied in the identity the Father gives to him. And yet even with this beautiful um, image, if you're anything like me, you might still be saying, this is all good and fine for Jesus to do, but I know a lot of people see, who seem so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. So mystical. What about the tangible stuff? What does prayer do for that side? The people who are actually hungry. The people who are actually needing care and love. And that brings me to the second point. First is Jesus refreshing his identity. And yet second, one of our deepest longings is that we would participate with God in what he's doing. And we see that. That after prayer, Jesus is refreshed with a vibrant vision of God's will on earth. And how he is participating in that. If you look with me, Luke chapter 6. I love this passage. Luke chapter 6, another uh, beautiful start on prayer. This is what we read. One of those days, another vague start. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. Get this, spent the night praying. That sounds like a nightmare to some of us. A night praying. But this is what caught me this week. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and he chose 12 of them. What do you think was happening in that time of prayer? What I see is Jesus praying all night, being in the presence of his Father, being refreshed in his identity and refreshed in his vision of how God is working on earth. So he has his time of prayer. He comes back and he says, you know what? You 12, I need you to follow me. Because I've been praying. I've been attentive to how God is moving here, here on earth. And I want to invite you into something that I've tasted of. Do you want to taste it with me? After praying dawn to dusk, Jesus invites the twelve to follow him. Prayer is generative. It's creative. It's empowering. It's actually illuminating for how we can live in our life if we're possibly listening. One more tangible example is that, and the one that we've likely heard before, Jesus withdrew. He withdrew to Mount of Olives to pray. He gathered three of his disciples with him, we read in Luke 22. He knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthened him. And being in anguish, he continued to pray more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Before Jesus' participation in humanity's most rebellious event against God in all of history, Jesus is refreshed in his vision of participation. Not your will. Or not my will. Your will be done. But something to note is that he invited three other people with him. And he said, hey, would you actually pray with me? So that we wouldn't fall into temptation. And they just slept. Jesus, refreshed in his vision of who he is, refreshed in how God is moving on earth, inviting him into something, and the disciples are refreshed in their sleep. 
It's an interesting contrast. Instead of having this vision of what's ahead, actually what the disciples did is they didn't understand that vision, so they denied Jesus and they ran from him. Said they all deserted him. Jesus is not just refreshed in some strange, contemplative, mystical way. He's refreshed in the vision of how he will get up in the morning, participate in God's will, landing on earth to bring salvation for the whole of the world that we have tasted of. And he prayed the night before that happened. While that sounds heavy, and it is, but it's the invitation. It's something really beautiful. And so there's one, one other quote from von Balthasar that I want to say. This is the quote. God's gaze fell upon us. This is in prayer. In prayer, God's gaze fell upon us. It's like he knew us. Like the sun which transfigures the countryside and bathes the countryside in colors, warming it, rendering it fruitful, instilling its energy and light into things so deeply that they become capable of growing, that they become capable of blossoming, capable of bearing fruit of themselves. God's gaze is not passive. The disciples see the depth of Jesus' devotion to his Father and constantly withdrawing to pray. They see Jesus refreshed and satisfied in who he is, what he's doing. Refreshed in his identity, his sense of belonging, his sense of why he's here. And so instead of asking how to learn to raise the dead, instead of asking how can we multiply more food for more people, they just said this, teach us to pray. Jesus' source of dependence pointed to the source of their deepest longing, and I think also ours. If you could ask Jesus to teach you one thing, if you're just being honest, raw honest, what have you asked him to teach you? For me, often, I think I suddenly just ask because I want more control of things. I actually ask that he would give me areas where I can have more understanding in and control But instead, maybe the invitation Jesus teach me to pray is to help me approach prayer as a participant and not the one in control. Before I try to be an expert at the Enneagram or an expert in Christian apologetics or maybe to bike better, maybe to cook better, maybe to run better, maybe to mom better, maybe to play guitar better, teach me. Teach me to pray these 57 words that you saw fit to tell your disciples after all these beautiful jubilee happenings when they asked, teach me. This is what he said. 57 words. Jesus, teach me to realize my purpose and identity. Jesus, let me be willing to pray in the midst of my frustrations instead of delegating it to people around me. And so this is what Jesus gives. He offers a prayer. This is what we find in Matthew. This is the one we're most used to reciting and, and reading aloud. Luke's version is a little shorter. This is what Matthew says. Jesus teaches his disciples. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. As a gift, Jesus teaches the disciples a prayer that engages with the past, the present, and the future. 
It's a prayer that engages with our relational, our spiritual, our working beings. The voice, if you're looking in the original in Greek, it's actually the voice of imperative, of command. It's not passive. It's actually very active, maybe aggressively active, commanding. But it's not commanding God to do our dirty work, and and it's not a lighthearted suggestion. It's commanding God to do the work that only God can do. To satisfy our deepest restlessness until we rest in God. This is Jesus' prayer. Not his requests, but his commands. Commands that always take root in our cities and streets, homes, neighborhoods. Make real your name. Make real your kingdom. Make real your provision. Make real your forgiveness. Make real your guidance. Make real your victory over the devil. Jesus' dependence points to our deepest longing. And this is what he gives his disciples. The world that we live in, the reflexes of our flesh, the deceit of the devil makes prayer really hard for us to practice because it just seems to have no surface value. We want things that we wanted immediately and prayer doesn't actually seem to give us that. So we get frustrated. I don't know if you've had that experience when you've woken up being like, I actually don't feel like praying because I just don't think it does anything. We've heard too many people send cheap texts about them praying for us, and we've sent them ourselves. Praying for you. That just means that I just typed this out. Some of us have prayed for people that have sicked, and they remain sick. Some of us are still praying, and we still experience depression. We've prayed, and our family is still torn. We've prayed, and we're still lonely. We pray, and we still feel nothing at all when we pray. In our discomfort and confusion, there's, there's not a lot I'm going to be able to say to bring deep satisfaction to those experiences that you have in prayer. But maybe just simply the reminder again of Jesus going back continually to times where prayer wasn't about feeling something. It was actually just being in presence with God so that he would remember who he is and actually what God's doing on earth. And what God was doing on earth actually led him to a place of a lot of discomfort. His time of prayer led him to a lot of agony. His prayer led him to experience the greatest injustice that the world has ever tasted of. And yet Jesus didn't just do that on his own. And so, two invitations for you. First, I just invite you, once a day, one line at a time, to pray this prayer. You can find it in Matthew 6. You can find it in Luke 11. You might know it by heart. Once a day, one line at a time. Just pause. This prayer we know, we can say it in our sleep, whether it's in English or our um, language of choice. Once a day, slowly, one line at a time, as if we're actually asking God to do something only God can do. It's not asking us to do something better. And the second is this, I actually just invite you to ask for prayer from your pastor. That might be one of us here, that might be somewhere else. It's not a pastor, just a friend. Actually, that this prayer was meant to be with people. And it comes to life when you actually pray with someone else. And I've tasted of that over the last handful of weeks. So I actually invite you to do that. To have this time of prayer with the pastor, either here or someone that you're comfortable with. And so we're going to move into a time of communion now. Um, and before communion, I'm going to explain communion, and then we're going to have it just a time of prayer, of praying one, one line at a time. Uh, and afterwards, 
the band can come up and they're going to play a few more songs of reflection. And during that time, we're going to have people that are willing to pray for you. Um, so Cindy and myself will be at the back. Uh, it doesn't have to be anything related to today. Um, but for communion, I invite you to come up whenever you're ready as the music is playing, during, um, mainly through that first song. We'd invite you to come. Um, we're going to have servers here. They're going to dip um, the bread in de-alcoholized wine and offer it to you and say that this is Christ's body given for you, his blood shed for you. And it's just if you come down this aisle, you can make your way back to your seat through this other aisle. And if, um, if, if gluten is something that's uh, not actually helpful for your body to digest, we have these wafers, um, and we'll have one uh, cup set apart on the side uh, that you can use um, just so we don't cross-contaminate that. And uh, we also have just uh, packets of juice and wafers if you'd prefer. So we're going to have this time of communion, but before that, the invitation for us, I just want to practice together, is just working through the Lord's Prayer. We can say it, I encourage you, uh, you can speak it in the language that you're most comfortable with. We're just going to go one line at a time, then we're going to pause. And that might feel awkward for you. I just invite you in that pause, it won't be long, just to pray. I think praying verbally is actually can be really helpful for processing sake. Um, it might be a little disruptive here. Maybe it's just whispering to yourself. Whatever that line brings up. And we're just going to slowly work through. So when you hear me start speaking the line, um, you can join in with me if you're comfortable. And then we'll just have a pause. You'll notice at the end we don't have that tag that often we say, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. We're just going to pray it the way Jesus gave his disciples, which ends right here. So as we enter into this, my last invitation that I was encouraged with by a pastor, um, she's serving out in Brooklyn. She just said, when we come to prayer, we just have to come with honesty. So I just encourage you to actually just pray what is honest today for um, what these words mean for you. So in the ways of the disciples, when they said, teach me to pray, um, let's allow our hearts to actually ask that question. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from the evil one.